Welcome to the Community of Faith podcast, where you will hear the exposition of God's Word taught by Rev. Patrick Parham, pastor of Faith Community Fellowship in Bristol, Tennessee. If you are in the Bristol area and would like to visit, please join us for Sunday morning worship beginning at 10 a.m. If you're not able to join us in person, join us online. Visit our website, faith-cf.org. That's faith-cf.org. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithcommunityfellowshipbristol. That's all one word, Faith Community Fellowship Bristol. Here at Faith Community Fellowship, our goal is to ensure that what we do is edifying to our Heavenly Father, and we hope that this podcast is a blessing to you. Let's join Pastor Pat as he brings us God's Word. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this, this morning, we'll be doing the latter half of this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So as you turn there, please, we'll begin our reading at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf, that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue this worship service, how wonderful it is to look into Your Word, to read it, and look for principles that help us to live for You. But how incapable we are of doing that without the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit and Him enlightening our minds giving us the understanding capable of comprehending what we're reading and how it applies to us in everyday life. And so I ask for that marvelous work of the Spirit to continue today that You would override the sin that's in my members and cause me to be useful to Your people. Help us to all 
grow in our understanding of who you are. To learn, as it were, from the feet of Jesus as you teach us through your word. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you remember last time we talked about those first ten verses and how Paul was talking about when he dies or we die in the intermediate time before Christ comes back, what happens to us, where we go, and the habitation being heaven, and how wonderful those hopeful verses are. Talking about making it our aim, whether we're present, that is, whether we're in this world or whether we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, wherever we are to be pleasing to Him because there is going to be a judgment. We talked about all those things last time. So he just continues. As you're very well aware, there aren't any chapter divisions, verses or whatever in the manuscripts. Paul just was writing a letter. So the divisions and things are there for our benefit, but they don't really exist in the Word of God proper. So he's just continuing here, knowing therefore, he says, I know that there is a terror of the Lord. <clears throat> now most of the time, when the Bible speaks of a terror or a fear of the Lord for Christians, it's talking about a, a reverence. A godly fear, reverence for who He is and what He says. And, and, and that's probably where Paul is, is leaning here. He could have a little bit of what we think of as actual fear because it's still linked into appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. But And he could be thinking along the lines of the lost that they're going to have to come before the judgment seat and experience what we would think of as actual terror because they're not prepared. All of that could be in his mind. But anyway, the result was he sought to persuade men to live in ways that's pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say, we are well known to God. He said, God knows my motivations. And I'm, a, I'm assuming, I believe, and I trust that you and Corinth do also. So I'm going to commend myself not again to you. He said he'd been accused of that in the past, of kind of glorying in his ministry and because you remember we talked so many times about he had enemies in Corinth. Not, not the whole church by any means. But there were little factions and there were false teachers or some people think just one false teacher. But there was somebody there that was stirring up trouble and trying to gather Paul's following for themselves. And so he's, he's talking about that opportunity, that situation here. He said, I'm going to say these things so that you that love me and know that I love God and you have more ammunition, so to speak, to ward off these evil attacks that come against me. I want you to have an opportunity to give an answer. I want you to have something to say. Because the false teacher, they were glorying in appearances. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in the heart. If you think I'm beside myself, if I'm insane, or whatever you think, or if you think I'm in my right mind, whatever, I want you to know that God's glory and the church growth is my goal. 
His message was always from God for the good of God's people. That was his motivation all the time. And he understood that God knew that. When he talks about the love of Christ constraining us, I believe he's talking about the love that Christ has for us. Constraining was it was controlling his actions. And it caused him to live in certain ways and do certain things. The love that Christ has for us was a constrainment around him in the sense that it kept him in line. It kept him moving in a direction that was pleasing to God. And he said, we just judge. If one died for all, then all died. Now, how, how, how do you want to view that verse? I'm going to talk about that in the, previous, in the uh, next verse a little bit. Viewed as all mankind, when he talks about one died for all, then all died, the verse is simply saying that Christ died for everybody because everybody needs a Savior. That's pretty straightforward. And we know that all mankind died spiritually in Adam as he was our federal head. We understand that. We call that original sin. We're aware of that kind of concept. And it's certainly a biblical truth. Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Others come along and they teach that this Verse is speaking of the true power that's behind justification and sanctification. That is expressed this way. When Christ died on the cross, all who did or will belong to Him, or if we prefer, phrase it this way, all who receive Him as their personal Lord and Savior spiritually died with Christ. On the cross. Spiritually, they died with Him. And it's through the virtue of His death that we're justified once and for all and sanctified gradually as our life goes along. That's, that's a biblical concept as well. In Romans 6, verse 6, Knowing this, our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And that concept could go right on into verse 15. Now, Reality though, I believe all true Christians believe both. They really do. We believe Christ died for our sins and we also believe that the power to live a holy life emanates from Him. We believe these things. But the point that theologians are talking about, the point that has divided churches over the centuries, what they struggle with is what is meant by that little word, all. If one died for all, then all died. Does it mean every individual that's ever been born, all-inclusive? Or does it mean some that God chose to save before foundation of the world? In other words, this verse becomes a, a point of contention almost. Is the, is the atonement universal or is it limited by design? That's what they're talking about. And, and I can just hear somebody, maybe not anybody here, I don't know, but somebody saying, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows what all means. Well, do we? Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Has the grace of God that appears to all men 
actually been shown to every person in every generation ever born? I'll leave that to you to answer. Or what about over in Mark when it says about John the Baptist's ministry that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to hear him? Is that every single individual? Again, I'll leave that. But I don't want to get too far down that trail. i just give you that stuff to think about. But I believe the context is helpful for us both in ways of sanctification, justification, and then he's going to talk about reconciliation in the latter part of the message. I'm not saying that the extent of the atonement is not important. I'm just saying that it's never good to build a doctrine from one verse of Scripture. There is such a thing as analogy of Scripture. Look at the whole Bible. What does it say about a particular topic? What does it say about the atonement, for example? But let's go back to the passage. If one died... We could certainly say that Jesus' death is sufficient for all who come to Him. In the Old Testament, you remember we've talked about the Old Testament sacrifices many times. Every year there were daily sacrifices and once a year there was a day of atonement for it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. But in the New Testament, Christ died once for sin at the end of the ages. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. In other words, Christ was offered once in the place of many others. His death was substitutionary. He died so that we do not have to. And those thoughts are out of Hebrews 9. And then all died, either wanting to refer it to original sin or all who received Him spiritually died with Him on the cross. You see, our old concepts, our old man, for most translations, or well, I want to know about most, but a lot of them say the old nature, that type of thing, died with Him there. Now just stay with me. Now let's move on to verse 15. If that took place, if one died for all and all died, and He died for all, what should be the result? What should be the result in Christians that acknowledge these truths? That those who live, those who are made alive in Christ at salvation, should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. You see, that's the way the Bible handles doctrine. You know, when I was in school, I shouldn't say this in front of these children, but Sometimes I would memorize facts just so I could pass the test. I didn't know what the facts meant. I didn't know how they correlated to one another. I was concentrating on money. There's going to be a test and I want to make a good grade. But the Bible doesn't operate that way. When it tells us some doctrine, some teaching, some statement of fact, it applies what it's teaching to us. What are we going to do with that knowledge? Since we are told that Christ died for all, what should be our response? Our lives should change if we have been made alive in Him. We should be living for Christ instead of ourselves. For Him who died and rose again, both are equally parts of our redemption there important parts. In Romans 4 and 25, 
who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. You see, we have a living, victorious Savior seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. The result should be we are living for Him. He said, as I know these things and I assimilate these things in my mind, I no longer regard people according to the flesh. I don't judge people by external circumstances. When we're walking down the street and we see somebody and, and maybe they're dressed different than we are. Maybe they're a different color than we are. Maybe they got a bunch of tattoos and I don't. That shouldn't come into play as we look at them. Are they a Christian or not? That doesn't tell us. He said, I don't look at that anymore. He said, I used to. I did know Christ according to the flesh. Now, there's no biblical evidence that Paul ever met Christ on this earth. What he means is, I looked at the life of Christ as I understood it. I looked at the life of Christ as a man and I compared it with what I expected the Messiah to be and I didn't think He was Him. I didn't, I didn't think He measured up. He said, That's the way I used to think about it. You remember, He persecuted the church prior to salvation. But He said, I don't do that anymore. Because now I know Him thus no longer. Now He knew who Christ really was. Now He knew that Christ was the second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God. He was the Savior because He had saved Paul. So He didn't, he didn't go back and make those comparisons. He went back and read the Old Testament now and He saw how Jesus fulfilled that because His eyes are open. He said, take that same idea that same principle, maybe on a little bit lower scale, and apply it to our fellow man. So don't judge them by what you see. Judge them by the heart and how they are. And therefore, said, I no longer do that. Because if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The prerequisite to being a new creation is being Christ. Because we have that old stony heart removed and a heart of flesh put in its place. We no longer live as a rebel to the commands of God, but now we love the law of God and make it the meditation of our hearts. And he said, old things have passed away. Old opinions, old ambitions, old reasons for living, all these types of things, they are passing away. Now that's not a once-for-all act. We become a new creation. When a baby is born, there is a new life. But we know that new life is not a fully developed, mature adult for many years. So a new creation leaves room for growth and sanctification as we are transformed. Romans said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as we get down through verse 17, let's apply some of these thoughts. Do we, you and I, live our lives in proper fear and reverence of God? Do we try to warn others to flee from the wrath to come knowing the terror of the Lord? That's, that's some of what he's talking about here. A second question, does the love of Christ constrain us? Does it cause us to, to look at life a different way? To live a little bit different method? Does the 
love of Christ demonstrated on the cross really affect our daily living? Does it cause us to, as the catechism says, to die more and more unto ourselves and live more and more unto Him? And are we making a conscious effort to live for Jesus every day, no longer, as the verse says, living for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose again? You might be thinking of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, these verses have some tremendous, wonderful doctrine in them. They really do. And when we get to the latter part of this chapter, he begins to talk about something we refer to as reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is making peace. It's making peace between opposing parties. That's the topic of these verses, 18 through 21. Now, reconciliation is something that is needed between mankind and God because, as I mentioned earlier, all mankind are born sinners. We have original sin from Adam inherited, and then we actually sin ourselves. At the same time, God is a holy and just God and He can't look on sin and He can't overlook that and be true to His nature. So there has to be a reconciling, a bringing together of those opposing forces, a sinner and a just God. If we're going to know God, there has to be a way made. And God took the initiative. Verse 18, All things are of God who has reconciled us, the offender, to Himself, who was the one that was offended, through Jesus, the sinless One. He takes the initiative. And He always does. As I quoted earlier, we love Him because He first loved us. Or you can go over to Ephesians 2 and read about God taking the initiative in verses 4 and 5. He took the initiative through the work of Jesus Christ to make that way of reconciliation, to to take that wrath He had against our sin and satisfy that wrath so that we could have fellowship with Him for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And it was done through... Jesus Christ. That is, He was the only man who never broke the law. Therefore, He was qualified to die in our stead. Death is the wages of sin, and Christ had no sin, so death had no claim on Him, so He died for us. But He was also the Son of God, powerful enough to effect our salvation, infinitely sufficient, and His power was and is limitless. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And He says, as a result of that, God was in Christ reconciling the world, not imputing their trespasses. Now, we don't use that word much, imputing. But the concept is is relatively simple. He didn't reckon to our account. He didn't write on our record our sins. He didn't impute them. He didn't place them over there. Not reckoning, not imputing their trespasses. And He has committed to us that ministry of telling people how to 
God has provided reconciliation. And he's talking about himself, but also other ministers, and to a certain extent, every Christian. We have the mission or the opportunity to share the wonderful news. He goes on to talk about we are ambassadors for Christ. Now looking at the congregation, I would say that the majority of you right now are too young to remember the example that I'm going to give you. But back in the 70s, we had a president called Jimmy Carter. He's still alive. And he appointed Andrew Young, who was the mayor of Atlanta at that time, as the ambassador to the United Nations, for the United States. Well, the ambassador is supposed to represent the sovereign. To say what the sovereign wants, or in this case, the president wants said. Does it matter what the ambassador thinks? He is sent to say what somebody else thinks. Well, Andrew forgot that. And he went and took it on his own initiative and met with the Palestinian leaders, which the president had said, do not do that. We're not in diplomatic ties with them. Well, he went against that, so he lost his job. He was removed. He didn't have that liberty. See, we're not at liberty to say just anything or proclaim just any message. Our message comes from God. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ. And as an ambassador, he said, I'm pleading as though God was speaking through me for you to be reconciled to God. Now, he said that God has made a way of reconciliation. The payment has been made by Christ. The wrath has been satisfied to the fulfillment of the Father. But that doesn't mean that everybody has the benefit. Let me give you another example. Now, I'm not looking for this to happen. I don't know of any rich relatives that I have. But if I had a rich relative and he died or she died and they left me a million dollars, but I didn't know it, or I didn't care for whatever reason, and I didn't go to the reading of the will, and I didn't make myself available, and time just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling. After a while, I'm not going to get the million dollars. It's there. It's waiting for me. It's set aside for me, but I don't get the benefit of it because I never went to receive it. That's what he's talking about here. That's the idea. We have to embrace the offer. The offer of reconciliation is there. The message has been provided. The means are already provided there. The demands of the law have been met. But that doesn't mean the entire human race is reconciled. It means the offer has validity. It is a true, valid offer. But it must be received. And it's on the ground to verse 21. How did God get reconciled? How do we have that offer of salvation? For He made Him, that's Christ, you knew no sin, the sinless one, to be sin for us. And we know that doctrine. We read it over in Isaiah 53. We read it in Psalm 22. We read it in the Gospels of the New Testament here. And He became sin for us. Thinking of that idea of imputation, that means that our sins 
were placed on Him. And not only that, His righteousness, if we receive it, is given to us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He is the basis of reconciliation. His perfect life, His substitutionary death is counted as ours and our sins, our rebellion are counted as His when we receive Him as our Savior. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now let me conclude my thoughts. For us here who are Christians, Paul talked about the love of Christ constraining Him. And that should work in us as well, giving us a cause, a reason, a desire to live for Christ. You see, even if we have just a very basic understanding of the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, the value of the Holy Spirit's presence within us, we're going to desire to flee from things that offend Him. How do we do that? How do we grow as that new creation? Well, we feed that new creation through the Word of God in prayer and we starve that old thought patterns and that old sinful habits to death. We stay away from them. We try to make that a reality in our everyday lives. And then secondly, when we think of justification and reconciliation, these are wonderful acts of God. Wonderful. But you see, reconciliation and justification are what we might think of as forensic acts. You're familiar with that term, aren't you? If you go, if you watch these old silly scientific criminal investigation shows on television, I used to, but I can't stand it anymore. They have forensic scientists. We call them coroners, stuff like that. And everything they do on somebody, the person has nothing to do with it. They're dead. So these are forensic acts, meaning that they're done outside of us, or if you please, upon us. God moving on behalf of lost dead sinners because we cannot move. And the only work of God we can do is believe in Him who loves us and gave His life for us. And that gives all the glory to God and we get the benefit. Let's finish up by reading verse 14 and 15 again. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all die. If he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to live for You. We thank You for making the payment that provides reconciliation between us and the Father. We thank You for taking our sins upon Yourself so that when we become Christians, uh, Your record becomes ours and the Father sees us as sinless and clean before Him. Therefore, we can come boldly into the throne of grace and find help in our times of need. And I thank You that the work of the Holy Spirit applies all this wonderful knowledge in our minds and in our hearts. Pray for the people. Help us to 
grasp these concepts mentally, but also spiritually in our hearts. And may it cause us to want to live more for you every day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Pat, for another wonderful message from God's Word. I hope that you have enjoyed listening to Pastor Pat's message. If this has been a blessing to you, please like and follow this podcast and give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to support this ministry and the other ministry opportunities at Faith Community Fellowship, please visit our website, faith-cf.org support. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Community of Faith.